Julie and I take turns uh, driving our children to school. Uh, they go to a private school, so there's there's no bus, and we've been taking turns ever since they've been in school. Uh, it kind of depends on our schedule and where we're working or where we're living, who's doing what, who drives them, but I've been driving them at least once a week uh, ever since they've been in school. And Derek, I've been driving him to kin- I started driving him to kindergarten about five years ago, and I developed this little uh, ritual, a habit, a routine. I would walk with him to his class, because when you're in kindergarten, you want your dad to walk with you to class. And I would give him a hug, and I would say, Derek, I want you to have, I want you to have the best day of your life so far. And that doesn't mean much to a kid who's five or six years old because he hasn't had that many days. I mean, he's had some good ones, but maybe some weren't so good. He doesn't really get that idea. But I would say that to him every day. And finally, his teacher said, you know, we actually think that's pretty cool that you're planting hope and optimism in your son at such a young age. Well, that was all the encouragement that I needed. So I kept doing that. And Derek is now in fourth grade. He is long past the time where he needs me to walk him to class. But the truth is, I love doing it. So whenever I drop Derek off at school, I'll walk him up to his classroom. I give him a hug and I say, Derek, I want you to have the best day of your life so far. I mean, you might have had some good days and there might be better days in the future. But this one, this one could be the best day so far. Now, because it's this small Christian school, he's had the same classmates for like five years. I mean, some come and some go, but there have been a lot of kids there his entire five years. And so they've heard me say this to him. So I'll tell Derek, have the best day of your life so far. And then I'll look at one of the kids and I'll say, hey, what am I, what am I about to tell you? And they'll look at me and they'll do this. Have the best day of my life so far? Like, that is exactly right. So you don't know what's going to happen to you today. You might meet somebody that's going to be a friend for the rest of your life. You might be exposed to an idea or learn something that helps you choose a career or changes the way that you see the world. This day could be pivotal for you. And they're in fourth grade and they're looking at me like, why can't you be normal like our parents? I'm an optimist. May have gotten that. I'm always looking at, at what's, what's best. What could happen? What are the good things that happen? I, I'm an optimist about a lot of things. I've made a living as a professional salesperson. Can I tell you that to make it in professional sales, do you know what you need? A healthy dose of optimism because you've got to go to the office, make the phone call, take the meeting and believe that that guy is actually going to buy something from you or you can't eat. I've been playing my, my daughter in Boggle with Friends. Anybody play Boggle with Friends? This little app, it's a word game that you can play. My daughter beats me nine games out of ten, which means I, I actually, it's a different way of saying I lose nine games out of ten. But when we start a game, every time I'm like, this could be the one. This is the game. This is the one that I'm going to win. I'm optimistic. I don't want you to think I'm a bad Boggle player. Aaron's just really good. I beat everybody else that I play, just not her. And I am optimistic about the future of Woodbine Church. We've had, we've had a lot of good days. We're in a good season now, but the things that God's going to do in the future, I don't know what they are. I don't know what they are, but they, they could be amazing. I have a whole shelf of clothes in my closet that I'm optimistic that one day I can fit back into. Do any of you have, do any of you have those clothes? How many optimists? Right? And I'm optimistic. I'm incredibly optimistic that we can finish this service in time to beat the Methodists to the buffet. All right, there we go. But 
here, here's the, in this room, some of us are optimists. We tend towards hope. Some of us, some of us are pessimists. We tend toward despair. We have less hope, but there's a test so I can know who the optimists and the pessimists are. And I put the test here on the table. Up here is a vase brought to you by uh, Dollar Tree. I have filled it with water to the halfway mark. This represents hope. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to ask you, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? And I'm going to get a show of hands. All right, how many of you are my people? How many of you, the glass is half full? Let me see your hands. Oh, we got a fair number of optimists. How many of you, the glass is half empty? Okay, we got one or two or three people that admit it. And then there's a handful of you that are like, I think there may be a hole in the bottom of the glass. That's how pessimistic I am. All that may leak out by the end of the service. We've got some optimists and we've got some pessimists, and that's, that's pretty natural. This morning, we are going to look at a passage of Scripture that has both a pessimistic and an optimistic interpretation. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read from Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to read the whole chapter while you're standing because that would be a lot, but I'm going to give you the first seven verses and a reverence for the word of the Lord. We're going to stand. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Have a seat. If you were here last week, If you're here last week, the world was great. God had just made it, and he'd made it in six days, and at the end of every day, he says the same thing. He says it's good, except except on the sixth day where he actually says, this creation, the man that I've put in it, the garden that he's in, what I've given him to steward, all the animals and the plants, all the things he's going to manage for me, that's not just good, that's very good. Last week, just last week, the world was very, very good. And in chapter 2, which we didn't read, we find a more detailed account of God creating Adam and Eve, placing them in the garden, and God gives Adam this instruction. If you've grown up in church, which I think most of us have, you've read this chapter over and over. God says, you can eat from the fruit of any tree in the garden, except this one. It's the knowledge of good and evil. On the day you eat from it, you will surely die. God has created earth without error. It's completely perfect. And he's put Adam in the best part of the earth, in the Garden of Eden. And he's given him one command, just one. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve eating the fruit from that tree. With just one command, they bring sin into the world. And what is it that happens? Starting in verse 8, the man and his wife 
heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So pause for just a second in the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3. We have sin entering the world in the form of disobedience, and we have shame as Adam and Eve make coverings for themselves. And the words that I've highlighted in my text are these. It says, Adam was afraid. Eve was afraid. A week ago, the world was perfect, but now we have fear. They were afraid, and they hid. And God asks, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And to be clear, this is a yes or no question. The man, however, replies, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. Now that is its own sermon. Adam is not taking any responsibility for the action that he has done and that Eve has done in front of him. Essentially, he is blaming Eve for something that he did. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman also does not accept responsibility. It was the serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So in the first seven verses of Genesis 3, we have disobedience, and we have shame. Then we have fear, we have deception, and we have blame. Sin has come into the world. And this is what happens to optimism and to hope when sin comes into the world. A little bit of shame, a little bit of deception, a little bit of disobedience, and our future becomes cloudy and full of fear. Do you know what I have to put in water to make it do that? Die. Because that's what's going to happen to Adam and to Eve. And it doesn't get better, at least not yet. In verse 14, we see God start to tell Adam and Eve what the consequences of their sin will be. And he says, as he speaks to the serpent, because you've done this, speaking to the serpent, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You're going to move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. A week ago, the world was perfect. Now, God has cursed an animal that he created. And in verse 16, he says to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And so we have cursing, we have pain. And then he says to the man, you listen to your wife. You ate from the tree about which I commanded you. Do not eat from it. The ground, the earth, the planet, the thing that I made perfect, it's cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. One broken command and all this. I think sometimes it's hard for us to read this passage with any sort of understanding because it happened so long ago, and if we're honest, it's kind of hard to picture. We've never seen anything that's that perfect. And it seems to us that while we clearly understand that sin is in the world, it can be hard to understand how it is that that impacts us, how it affects us. I mean, a consequence of death for sin seems so severe. After all, we're really not that bad, are we? I mean, we're really good people. We've never murdered anyone. 
And I would submit to you that in our lives, in the air that we breathe, in the people that we associate with, in the news that we see, we have become so used to sin that we forget how big the effect of sin is on creation. And so as I was preparing to to teach you this morning, I started to think about sin in three different categories. And I want to frame up sin this way because I think it really helps us understand the gravity, not just of the consequences of Adam and Eve's actions, but what they mean for us and what they mean to God. I think one way you can look at sin, it's sin that you can see. It's sin that I observe. It doesn't affect me personally, but it's just something that I see. So January 4th, which was just last week, uh, there was a story in the news that I think some of you probably saw, but many of you didn't, and I'm going to tell you what stuck out about this story to me. It was a story of a school shooting. It happened in Iowa in a small little town there, and this is how this story was reported in almost every major news outlet. The first school shooting of 2024. How evil does that sound? It was, we're expecting more of them. This is just the first one. This is the world in which we live. And in a city that experienced the effects of a school shooting uh, almost a year ago now, we sometimes forget. But other interesting thing about this article that I saw was that it was sandwiched in between a war in Ukraine in a military conflict in Israel, and an a election cycle in the United States that grabs a fair amount of press, and it didn't stay news for very long. Why is that? Not only was it just the first one, uh, there were only two people that were killed. A sixth grader who was a victim and the 17-year-old student who shot himself. There were seven, other in, seven others injured, but let's be honest, the ones that make the news more people die. How twisted and sick and demented and evil is that? Tomorrow we'll celebrate or remember the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., who was a civil rights leader. He died before I was born, but I've read about him. This morning I read his letters from a Burn- letter from a Birmingham jail. And if I've understood Martin Luther King properly, and I think I have, he had this basic idea that black men and white men were created equal, that they were both created in the image of God, and because of that they were, they were both entitled to a certain amount of dignity and respect and equality under the law and in society. And decades farther on, this doesn't seem to us like a very controversial idea, but in fact, his ideas were largely condemned and not received with warm welcomes by who? By society in general, and especially in some instances, by people in white churches. For this incredible idea that all men were created in the image of God, uh, Martin Luther King was murdered. There's plenty of sin in the world. Where does it start? Right here in Genesis 3. I told you this was pessimistic. It's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. Because as bad as the sin is that we see, in a room of this size, there's also sin that we experience. And everybody in this room has been a victim of sin, everyone, and that sin is taken on different forms and different degrees. How many of us have had something stolen? We have been the victim of theft. And it makes us angry and full of rage. And we just don't understand why would somebody take something from me? And a room of this size with the number of people that we have here, the fact that uh, some of us have been dealt with relationally in ways that have nearly destroyed our lives. 
There have been all kinds of manner of sin committed against our, 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 our mental health, against our bodies, against our families. Some of us, it's amazing that we can breathe. That's how much hurt we carry around. Some of us are blessed to come from functional families where mother and father stayed in the home and raised us in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And others of us have stories about our father that starts out, well, you know, my parents weren't believers. And then, I mean, for many of us, life has been very tough. All of us have experienced sin done against us. Some of us have experienced that in ways that are even deeper and darker, but that's not the worst. The worst is maybe the sins that we've committed. The things that we can't undo. Adam and Eve committed one sin that we have in Scripture, but we've committed many, many more. And if we're honest in church, we tend to single out certain categories of sin. We've got a few favorites that we'd like to talk about or preach against. We talk about sexual sin, and we should talk about that. But God has, God has a plan for the sexuality of our bodies. And our modern culture, like almost every culture throughout history, has distorted that. But God has a plan, and we violate it all the time with pornography, with adultery, with fornication. Sexual sin is a big deal. And then we talk about people that are alcoholics. And we're like, you know, uh, God, our body is a temple. God, God hates drinking. We shouldn't be addicted to anything. We only want to put in there what is good. And we have, we have these categories of sin. Uh, murder. If, if you've murdered someone and you come to church, we, we might want to have a word with you about that. But the truth is that we don't even need to go outside of our minds to commit a sin. Jesus tells us if you've looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that I'm in a room full of adulterers. Not only that, I'm in a room full of people who have harbored malice, who have told lies, who are occasionally filled with rage, and sometimes, sometimes we're ashamed of the things we think we would try if only we could get away with it. Sin, sin is in the world. There's no hope. The glass is cloudy. I told you, I'm an optimist by nature, but when it comes to sin and its effect on us and our lives, I actually think I actually think there's no hope at all. At least when it comes to you or me. The glass isn't half full or half empty or half die in it. The glass is completely empty. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? (laughs) We start out with pessimism. But we move fairly quickly in the narrative to optimism. And here's the main idea that I want to focus on today. God has a plan for saving us, but it's not primarily for our benefit. And I want to work through the text, and I want to explain to you what it is that we find here. Because as soon as Adam and Eve sin, uh, God is speaking to the serpent and he says uh, this somewhat profound thing in verse 15. He says, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman. Maybe there's nothing so profound about women having hostility towards snakes. But he says, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. You will strike his heel. And throughout the history of Christianity, this is how we've interpreted that last sentence. 
we believe that it foreshadows the coming of Jesus Christ, who will crush the head of Satan at the cross, ultimately defeating Satan, sin, and death. So immediately on the entering of sin into the world, we have consequences. We had a set of, have a set of consequences that we cannot escape, but we also have God giving a plan for our salvation, but not, not primarily for our benefit, for his. Last week we said that the story that we're in is not our story. See, when we're the hero of our story, we make ourselves better than we are. When we're writing the story and looking at the world through our eyes, we don't really have sin or whatever sin it is that we have. We rationalize or we excuse or we say, I'm not as bad as the person next to me. But God, God is not deceived by that. The effect of sin in the world, we cannot escape. God gives a plan for us, for his glory. And in verse 21, we see a foreshadowing of what that plan looks like. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, you might be thinking, I'm glad there's animal skins that sounds like a step up from fig leaves, and it was. But something important in this verse not to miss is that up until this time, no animals have died. There's been no death in the world. It was created, it was created in total perfection. So all uh, Adam and Eve and all the animals ate exclusively plants. There's been no bloodshed in the world at all until after the fall, when God slaughters animals, sheds their blood to obtain skins to make clothes that cover the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve. Throughout Scripture, we find there is uh, no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. doesn't sound hopeful, but it is. On the one hand, we might have some hope in ourselves that becomes clouded. We might realize the effects of sin and have no hope at all. But what God does is God gives us a plan that doesn't leave the glass empty, or half empty, or even half full, but he gives us hope that overflows. One of my optimistic hopes this morning is that I'm going to get through this sermon without this table collapsing. Jesus says, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. And God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's our main idea for today. God's story is bigger than your sin. Last week we said the whole thing was God's story. This week we're saying that God's story is bigger than your sin. God's redemptive plan is big enough to account for the sin that you read in the news. God's redemptive plan is big enough to account for the sin that was done to you. And God's redemptive plan, maybe most importantly for everyone in this room, is big enough 
to redeem the sins that we have committed against each other. I don't know your story. I don't. I'm learning some of them. Bit by bit, I'm working my way through the directive. You're getting calls and texts from me. We're sitting down. We're having lunch. I have so much enjoyed getting to know this congregation. You guys are awesome. But I know, I know that sin is part of your story. And so the reason that there's three glasses up here is because what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to each one in turn and ask you which one of these glasses best represents you. If you're in this room and you're not sure why you're here, but somebody invited you and they said, oh no, the guy sometimes give out cookies and he had a globe on the stage. We're just kind of curious what it is that he's going to do. But you don't have a relationship with God and you're stuck because when I talk about the sins that you've done, like you have something in your mind, you know, like I did that thing to that guy and I can't, I can't make it right. I would give anything I have to undo my actions. And you can't. Maybe that's you. You've got, you've got no hope. I want to tell you, God's story is bigger than your sin. John 3.16, God so loved the world, all the world, you and me. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever hopes in him, whoever confesses to him, whoever turns into a relationship with God should not perish but have eternal life. Do you know, Adam and Eve sewed together fig leaves. Here's a fun fact for you that might change the way you read the first couple chapters of Genesis. Fig leaves actually contain a chemical that is irritating to skin. That's just a great mental picture. You're welcome. So... Adam and Eve, trying to solve the issue of sin for themselves, couldn't get it right. But God, God had a plan. His plan was Jesus. Jesus came. Jesus' blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're here and you have not experienced the redemption that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ... Next steps after the service, see Johnny Short or see me, we'll both, we'll both be there. Maybe, maybe you've been walking with God for years, and this is you. You're like, oh, I mean, I have hope. I've, I've, I've been a Christian uh, since I was born, practically, because I was born in church. My parents brought me there. There's never been a time when I didn't know that God had a plan for my life, and even though I know that I've sinned, I believe that I'm walking in right relationship with God. Let me tell you something. God's story still bigger than your sin, and I'm excited for you. You know what I want you to do? I want you to thank God for the ways in which he has prospered you and blessed you and brought people into your life to encourage you, there is a family of people around you that probably need a word from you. So on the one hand, we have someone who doesn't know God, and over here we've got a really mature Christian. In Mark chapter 4, uh, Jesus paints a picture for us of a, of a mature believer in Christ. He says, this person, this one produces a harvest, a harvest of righteousness. It's 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. And this is the person we all want to be. But I think a lot of times... I think a lot of times, most of us, in most days, I think I would put myself in this category. I really think, I really think that we're here. We know God. We have hope in God. Um, 
we trust God for our salvation. But if we're honest, the other thing that we really know, well, that's sin. Because we become so comfortable and cozy with sin that we don't even see it in ourselves anymore. And I think this is where a lot of us live. I mean, it's like we're just almost good enough and we look good enough relative to the people around us that we're not really chasing and trying to be this mature believer. I think we're just kind of stuck here. Something interesting in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, hadn't realized this until I did a little bit of study. Do you realize how much God's story is not about us and how much it's about him? Adam and Eve didn't even have names until after the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, there, there's only one character with a name, and that character is God. The serpent, whom we later identify as Satan in most Christian traditions, his name is not given in chapter 3. Adam, the Hebrew word, actually means man. In, most translation, in many translations of Scripture, including the one we're using, that name isn't used as a proper identifier until chapter 4. And Adam doesn't name his wife until after God casts them out of the Garden of Eden. We live here... And we want to make the story about us, about why we're okay living with sin. But the story is not about us at all. God's story is bigger than our sin. It was bigger than the sin of Adam and Eve. It's bigger than what you read on the news. And I don't want us to stay stuck here. What I want to do is I want to experience God to move from this position of mediocre Christianity to something that looks a little more mature. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I wonder, what is it that you're hoping in today? Last couple of weeks, we've been looking at stories. What's the story of creation. Last week we said all of the creation story is God's story. And today I'm telling you, God's God's story is bigger than our sin, and we want to find our place in that story. Told you I'm not pessimistic about sin, but I'm really optimistic about a lot of things. And I'm very, very optimistic about the future of Woodbine. I want every one of us to take a next step and Christian maturity, either I want us all to be moving towards this class. What would it look like if our entire community actually lived over here? I mean, I I don't know us very well, but I'm going to guess that may not be where we are. But God's story, bigger than our sin, can bring us from here to here. That's the story we want to tell. I've been chatting with many of you and talking with people in the Brentwood staff team. And you know what people say about Woodbine? I mean, they just say the greatest things about this church. They say, uh, Woodbine is the warmest place. And you know what? My wife and I, we, our family, we found that to be true. They say the people at Woodbine are so welcoming, and it's such a multicultural community. It's so diverse. There's so many great things that are happening there. We want to celebrate all of those things. I'm like, yeah, all those things are true. And you know what? I still don't think that that is complete. Because I think God is going to do something here that we can't see coming. And if you were in our meeting at 930, you listened to Fadi talk about what renewal 
looks like. He said, small churches need to be renewed, large churches need to be renewed. In Isaiah 43, 19, God, God is bringing up a, a spring of water in the desert because he's doing something that's new. And here's why I want us to move from this class to that one. Not just because it's the right thing for us to do, but because it prepares us for what it is that God has coming here next. Anybody know what's coming next? No, I, I, I certainly do not. But I know, I know why people come to church. A lot of times people come to church because of the, the people there are friendly. Uh, maybe the music is great. Maybe the preaching is great. Maybe not. Just kind of depends on the week that you come. You know why they stay? They stay because they want to be they want to be this person. The witness of a community that is constantly dealing with the effects of sin to move towards maturity cannot be denied. And I want that for us. So I wonder if in this season, a transition season, while we're waiting to move from one thing into the next thing, I wonder if there's work that we need to do. I wonder if we need to confess. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I wonder if there are relationships that need to be restored, hard conversations that need to be had between a husband and a wife or between families here that may have some distant disagreement that no longer even really seems relevant. I wonder what work it is God would have us do in the meantime to move from here to here. And I pray that that is what we would be about in the meantime. God's story is bigger than our sin. Let's be quick to confess and freely forgive as together we continue to find our place in God's story in the next chapter of Woodbine.